Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas uh, sitting in today. Nice to have you with us. And uh, we have had great conversations during the first hour with legislative leaders, Senator Randy Brock and Representative Patty McCoy. Uh, it's uh, going to be a challenge, I'm sure, for our lawmakers when they reconvene next month uh, with the changing landscape, the loss of federal COVID-related funds and uh, uh, the pressure on on uh, spending locally with a lot of priorities in housing and public safety and whatever else comes along, so we wish them well. But we're honored to be joined now by our good friend Bob Ney. And, Bob, uh, been a while. Our, our schedules haven't coincided, but wonderful to chat with you today. Well, let's see. Uh, where's Bob? Bob, are you there? Yes. Oh, great. Sorry. Uh, yes. Uh, got to push Hello, the right Governor. button. How are you? Well, good. good. Uh, I was saying that our, yes. I've been filling in some, but uh, hasn't mm-hmm. been on a day with you, so I'm honored to have the chance to chat. Me too, definitely. Well, a lot going on uh, around the nation and around the world, and I suppose we should start uh, with the latter. Uh, the U.N. General Assembly uh, has voted to demand a ceasefire, and we've got um, uh, Jake Sullivan in the Middle East, uh, talking with the uh, leaders of Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Bring us up to date on what's going on in that troubled region. Right. There's two public policy ideas that have happened here, one being the resolution by the United Nations, then the second being uh, what will happen with uh, the Gaza Strip and what you know position Israel will take. And I mention that because also there's a, a political part to this, of course, and uh, the United Nations General Assembly voted to have an immediate ceasefire. Now, that became as a result of the Security Council getting a veto by the United States. By the way, the United Kingdom abstained on that, and so that stopped the ceasefire. So then they had a full-body vote now. Against the um, ceasefire at the United Nations was Austria, the Czech Republic, Guatemala, Israel, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, which I'm not sure where that's at, Governor, to tell you the truth, (laughs) Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, and the United States. And I mentioned all those out because we're only really the the out front major country that then voted against it. Uh, Our allies in Europe abstained on it. So... On the heels of that is this publicized meeting that you just mentioned between uh, Jake Sullivan, who you know is our White House National Security Advisor, top position, and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. And in that meeting, uh, Sullivan is telling Netanyahu that the high intensity needs to, you know, the attacks and the in the bombings that have transpired as a result of the, the attacks on Israel uh, need to end in weeks, not months. And the two are kind of tied together because Biden, as president, is feeling a big pushback, mainly from the progressive base of uh, of his own party. It struck me, uh, Bob. I know nothing about these things, uh, uh, mm-hmm. but um, wh- why why would we discuss military strategy in public? <laughs> well, you raise the jackpot point because why? This is being done is beyond me. Uh, 
you know, from Israel's point of view, uh, obviously it's not going to necessarily publicize strategy unless it has a specific reason to do it to motivate Hamas in some you know direction. It would be to the benefit of Israel. But then as far as us officially meeting, I mean, this is Israel and Hamas's war. I know we're funding it and involved, but for the United States to publicly meet and parts of that meeting to be disclosed about the United States saying, well, you know, we want this to end in weeks. I just can't imagine where Israel will say, even if they were going to do it, would say, okay, we're going to end this in exactly three weeks. Uh, that's a giveaway to Hamas that Israel can't afford. Exactly. And and now we're uh, seeing some reports this morning where Hamas seems to be stirring up mischief in Europe. So they, they must have a global strategy of causing trouble. Well, you know, they do. And um, I, I was just telling a couple of people this past week we were talking about the motivation of Hamas and what they did to Israel, which some people would say, well, you know, they hate Israelis, but I think it goes far beyond that, and it's sort of a parallel to what Osama bin Laden did in the United States, which is to cause a change of the way of our life. And uh, as far as the United States, it's not just about the 19 Saudis that flew on planes after they came to the United States. There were cells, including in Hamburg, Germany, two years before 9-1-1, where this was all being developed in Belgium, Hamburg, Germany, and other places. So this is the same thing. I think we're going to see, you know, increased problems throughout the world, but throughout Europe in particular. And there was a story that was just posted about the fact that uh, there was a plot to uh, kill some Jewish people in Europe, and it was uh, uh, foiled before it could happen. Well, fortunately, obviously Israel is going after the Hamas leadership, but uh, who knows where they are, right? Uh, maybe Qatar, maybe, yeah, who knows? Right. Who knows? All over the place. Well, uh, to be continued, unfortunately, uh, very difficult uh, situation there. But let me ask you about um, the impeachment vote, uh, the House uh, on a party line uh, vote, uh, uh, passed a resolution to begin the impeachment inquiry against the president. Um, um, it seems to me that maybe impeachment's just becoming another political tool. Uh, it, it, it shouldn't be this common, should it? You're 100% right. I was involved in the last, uh, well, not the last impeachment, because that was Trump twice. I was involved in the previous impeachment, which had been, a long time in between the impeachments when Bill Clinton was impeached. And at that point, it was, uh, you know, just you know, the amount of uh, nature, publicity and anger and people supporting and against it was, you know, unusual. Now, I think if you say impeachment, because we've had two with Trump and now starting the process, the formal process, uh, potentially with Biden, I think you're right. I think it has come to the point where people are like, oh, OK, well, this will be our if it happens, our third impeachment in a matter of four or five years. And I think it has become more commonplace and idea uh, amongst people than it obviously was when it happened with Bill Clinton. And of course, this is just a, a vote to allow the oversight committee to continue to explore it. And, and the chairman, Congressman Comer, says, well, we, we needed this because we're getting uh, pushback or obstruction from the White House. So uh, no no final determination yet. 
Right, and, and the white, and it's a great point you raised because the White House formally sent a letter saying that if the subpoenas that the Republicans have served, you know, up to date, if they're not going to be honored, uh, and that's not even going to be considered by the White House unless there's a formal vote. So the White House actually asked for a formal vote because McCarthy, the last speaker, did what we'll call an informal, you know, impeachment process just by consensus. So this was a vote, and the White House said that uh, that's what they would request. Now, that doesn't mean the White House is going to say, okay, we'll turn everything over to you. It just allows them to then decide what is executive privilege uh, or not to be turned over. We're chatting with Bob Ney, our Washington correspondent, uh, about uh, matters domestic and foreign. And and um, related to the impeachment investigation or inquiry is the whole Hunter Biden deal. Now, um, he, he held a press conference outside the Capitol building yesterday, apparently. What, what was that all about? Yes, he did, because I think the impeachment grew with, you know, the controversy of Hunter Biden. You know, obviously that was part of it. But the attack uh, he's been taking and his lawyers, Abby Lowell, is, is uh, one of them who's pretty pretty famous for cases where he's defended high-profile people. They went to the Capitol and they did a press conference. Now, Hunter Biden's been basically lying low for a long period of time, but he's now taking a very aggressive approach. And in there, I, I had noted that he really was referring a couple of times, you know, to his to his father and you know, uh, some of it was about um, uh, a dad's love for their son type of, of thing. And I note that because usually when you see something like this in this high-profile case, somebody's done some polling that it's okay to <laughs> say that type of thing. It, it gets a certain amount of maybe public sympathy. And uh, so Hunter Biden has now done this. He's also talking about going to the Supreme Court about his Second Amendment constitutional right to carry a gun, uh, which kind of, you know, gives a little bit of cloudiness to the issue because the issue is that he lied on a form to acquire a gun. And the one thing I would say about uh, this approach of Hunter Biden's, I'm not sure it's the wisest approach to go to the Capitol. He was going because he said, well, I'll go inside and talk to you, but I'm not going to answer a subpoena. He really had a plea deal this year earlier that would have really, I think, put a lot of this away. And that plea deal blew up like a nuclear bomb in court. And that's how he's ended up where he's at, because he's been charged by the uh, current Justice Department system, which is under you know, the current White House. So I was a little bit surprised he took this kind of uh, public approach back. But I guess, you know, maybe he's been advised uh, to do that. We'll see if it works or or if it hurts. Well, a tough situation, and obviously that it relates is. to the impeachment because there are a lot of documents that talk about the, quote, big guy, unquote, and mm -hmm. um, we'll see where all that leads. Right. You, you mentioned uh, a former Speaker McCarthy, and um, uh, I guess this is his swan song from the House, right? Uh, what, what's your take on Mr. McCarthy? Well, you know, he... Um he, like a lot of other people and friends of mine, uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, who was the temporary speaker, was a very good friend of mine when I was in the House. And uh, he's leaving. A lot of, frankly, a lot of people you know, are leaving. With McCarthy, it was probably a real true personal decision. I've known him since he was a staff member 
for Bill Thomas, who chaired the committee that I was vice chairman of. So I've known him a long, long time. I thought, personally, he did a pretty good job of trying to run the House under the circumstances of a very tight margin that he had. I think one of the demises that uh, was set early in the ball game is when he yielded to the ability of one person to move to vacate the chair of the speaker. I thought that was a precedent that would be unheard of really honestly in, in any type of legislative body where one person can make the motion and bring the whole place to a stop every single day if they get angry about, you know, the speaker of any legislative body. So I think McCarthy after he was ousted as speaker, thought he would maybe remain and do some things and, quote, fight the good fight. I think this is a very personal decision for for Kevin McCarthy. I think he is going to just move on to something else. And I'm sure his family, frankly, is you know probably pretty tired of it by now. Well, um, it's a difficult uh, situation for anybody, and we appreciate his his service and hope the future is, is good for him. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, uh, as always, thanks so much for your insight on on these uh, important developments um, in Washington and elsewhere. And uh, we hope uh, you have a good holiday season and uh, that Santa's good to you. And, uh, Thank you. You too, Governor. Thank you. I hope you have a, a great, uh, blessed holiday with you and your loved ones. And we'll hope to talk to you again in the new year. Okay. Bo- Thank you. Bob Nay, our Washington correspondent. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Jim Douglas uh, with you today. Some great conversations already this morning on the show with some legislative leaders, Randy Brock and Patty McCoy, with our Washington correspondent, Bob Nay. And we're going to uh, come a little closer to home now with uh, Kevin McCallum from Seven Days Magazine. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us this morning. Kevin? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Thanks so much for, for coming on and we appreciate your uh, your time and your patience. Um, so, uh, a new issue out uh, uh, this week, I guess, that uh, has some interesting stories, as always. And um, uh, one that really piqued my interest is the uh, the squabble between the uh, Abenakis of Vermont and Quebec, something that we've uh, heard little about uh, over the last year or so, perhaps prompted by some. Uh, some programming at uh, the University of Vermont, but things aren't always as uh, as simple as they seem, I guess. So uh, can you bring us up to date? Sure. Um, Well, you probably know a little bit more about this than I do, Governor. I mean, you were uh, were in office when some of these debates were really hitting a fever pitch in the legislature. Um, And now, but, uh, you know, 20 or 13 or so years later here, we've got a continued debate about whether the folks who claim Abenaki heritage here in Vermont um, ought to be considered legitimate tribes, right? There's a, there's groups of Abenaki in, in Quebec who argue that they are the legitimate Abenaki tribes um, and that these these tribes that Vermont has decided to recognize as a state uh, do not have that same legitimacy, do not have that same genealogical um, connection to their, uh, to the, to their, their, their ancestors and to the homeland here which covered most of New England. And so um, so what's happening now is the feud or squabble, as you put it, is uh, intensifying and continuing. And um, my story in this week's paper tried to get at how that debate 
about who's a real Abenaki is really putting environmental and conservation groups in Vermont in a tough spot. And how how are how is it doing that? Well, so imagine that you are a um, a conservation organization in Vermont, um, like the Nature Conservancy or Vermont Land Trust, and uh, you are wanting to forge or develop or expand relationships with Abenaki tribes in this uh, in your area, and you have two groups of people claiming to be true Abenakis. Uh, you have you have a group of folks in Quebec saying they are the true Abenakis, and then you have local folks in Vermont saying that they are a legitimate Abenaki tribes. And what has happened is that the, uh, as this debate has intensified, the Odenak and Wallenak tribes in um, of Abenakis in Quebec have asked these uh, conservation and environmental groups in the state of Vermont to stop working with the Vermont tribes. They did so in a very, very... Uh, a potent, let's say, letter sent back in June, basically saying that the Vermont tribes were complicit, uh, or the, the the organizations would be complicit in cultural appropriation and fraud if they keep if they kept working with with uh, tribes that the Odenak in Quebec do not see as legitimate. So they've asked them to stop working with them, and to instead work with the Quebec tribes directly if they want to work with indigenous groups. And that's that's the bind that some of these organizations were put in, and still remain. And and what's been the reaction of some of these uh, conservation groups? It's been mixed. Um, you know, one one group just said that they felt that the letter amounted to a cease and desist order, right? That they were, uh, and they didn't really appreciate that very much. Um, but most of them seem to be. Uh, t- taking the position that they have a lot of work to do to understand what's really going on, that the debate between these two groups of people is uh, is, is beyond them. <laughs> it's 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 complicated. It's deeply rooted in in historical controversies and debates. And that in order for them to make a good decision about moving forward and which group they should be working with, they've got to do some homework. And so what has happened is that the the Abenakis in Quebec have you know extended an offer for these groups to to uh, conservation environmental groups to come up to Quebec to learn about their history to tour the museum to meet with members of the tribe and to sort of start forging those relationships meanwhile the the tribes in Vermont have offered the same thing in the hopes of sort of shoring up their support locally and then the groups have had a mixed reaction some have said that they will pause their relationship with Vermont tribes while they do this work. Others have just said that they're going to try to, you know, maintain their existing relationships while learning a little more about the folks in, in, in Quebec and what they're, what they're claiming. Well, complicated for sure. We're chatting with Kevin McCallum from seven days about the uh, latest development in the, um, food or, um, let's see, what was your, uh, uh, now, fighting squabble. <laughs> or squabble, yeah, whatever, uh, uh, between the Abenakis north and south of the international border. You're right, Kevin. I know a little about it. It was late in my tenure when we set up the uh, uh, process for state recognition, although it, uh, the specific uh, designations didn't happen until after I left. But um, as I think you uh, noted in your story, the reports and the studies, the investigations by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Attorney General of Vermont 
15, 20 years ago, concluded that there was not a justification for the local Vermont-based tribes to uh, qualify for federal recognition, and that's why we came up with this sort of softer, gentler state recognition system. And and uh, we were told at the time that there were only a couple of reasons for it. One was um, uh, access to certain educational grants that were available to um, uh, to indigenous folks, and, and secondly, the ability to designate their uh, crafts as as Indian made, but but I guess we've gone beyond that. I think there are some free licensure deals that the legislature has offered subsequently, and of course uh, some bands are accumulating land either by purchase or gift. So it's uh, getting a little more involved, I guess. That's an excellent way to put it, Governor. Um, uh, I think that when the state recognition process was rolled out, was embraced. This, that was a, a major argument that was made, which is, which was essentially, this is not a big deal. <laughs> like, this is not going to have a major impact on the tax base of the state or on anything else. So don't worry, everyone. This is, this is, this is a big deal to us, but it should not be a big problem for the state. And, it, and you could still argue that it is not, but, but many additional benefits and opportunities have arisen for the, uh, local tribes as as uh, as the years have gone on as you say you know there are now land agreements there are flat out land donations being made to some of the some of the tribes just the other day or a few months back there was the completion of a 350 acre parcel of land in the northeast kingdom hmm. to one of the four tribes as a donation just to say here we want you to have your land back and so what has happened is that the, the Odenek in Quebec voiced their opposition to these Vermont tribes after initially, I think, supporting him. But now they're getting more vocal because they see that the Vermont tribes are gaining clout. Hmm. They're gaining They're gaining status. They're gaining uh, genuine legitimacy in the state, and that's what's really prompting the, the, the folks in Quebec to stand up and more forcefully denounce. And they actually use that word. They say, we denounce hmm. uh, these tribes because now they're trying to trying to undermine and erode some of that legitimacy that the, that the local Vermont tribes have been able to generate over the last decade or so. Well, um, uh, plenty for you to report on. Uh, I guess that's the good news yeah. if you're in the news biz, right? And we know you'll be keeping us uh, informed as uh, developments continue. So, Kevin McCallum, yeah. thanks so much for taking time this morning to chat about this. Uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. Not at all. Thanks, Governor. We'll take a break and be back after the news with Professor Matt Dickinson of Middlebury College to talk about those three university presidents who appeared before the Congress. Don't go away. New holiday music uh, opening up the segment of the show. Uh, great to be uh, with you this morning. Jim Douglas uh, sitting in, and we've had a great conversation already with um, some legislative leaders about the upcoming session. We've talked with our Washington correspondent, Bob Ney, about uh, developments in the national capital and around the world, and we had a good chat with Kevin McCallum from Seven Days Magazine about the challenge that we're, uh, about the challenge that we're facing with uh, uh, with Abenaki uh, uh, recognition here in the state. So 
Um, anyway, uh, we're, we're delighted to be joined for, uh, for this final segment um, by Matt Dickinson, professor of political science at Middlebury College. And uh, Matt, welcome back to the microphones of WDEV. Uh, glad to be with you, Governor. Of course, ordinarily when we chat, it's about uh, uh, the latest polls in the presidential race or, or maybe uh, uh, the congressional outlook or issues that are on the minds of the voters. But um, we want to chat this morning about something, uh, well, almost completely different, and that is the appearance of uh, three university presidents before a congressional committee this past week. Um, and I know that you know one of them personally, um, but give us the scenario and what led to that and, and uh, what we should take from it. Well, this, the backdrop to this is that the House Education and Workforce Committee um, asked college presidents from Penn, MIT, and Harvard to testify about recent on-campus incidents that uh, appeared to single out uh, Jewish students. And so they were uh, called there to testify about what they were doing to combat anti-Semitism. But the appearance went viral, particularly the interaction with New York Representative Elise Stefanik when she asked a series of yes-no questions about whether um, asking for the genocide of Jews was uh, acceptable conduct or something that violated the university's um, speech codes. And all three presidents, um, basically preaching from the same hymn book here, said it depends on the context. And uh, that just set off a firestorm uh, and, and it has still reverberated today. But the immediate consequence, of course, was Liz McGill, the, Elizabeth McGill, the president of uh, Penn, resigned under pressure. And donors are pressuring uh, the Harvard board to remove President Gay um, and um, MIT's president, Cornbluth, um, although both Gay and Cornbluth have received strong statements of support from the governing bodies at those two universities. But this will not die down, uh, and it raises a lot of interesting questions that we should discuss about the role of presidents and, and on-campus protests and speech conduct. Well, and, and we certainly should and will. I, I'm interested in why you think the, the Penn president quit so quickly and the other two are hanging on. Well, the... Um, Penn president was already under fire, not just for the um, anti-Semitic incidents, but um, for some other decisions she had made um, regarding um, a, a music festival um, in which a controversial um, musician had played. Uh, and so she was already under fire and had lost in the aftermath of um, what was viewed as a tepid response to the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack, had lost the support of key donors. Um, and so I think she just decided, uh, under pressure, of course, that she could no longer be effective as president. Um, the other two, uh, we, they, we may still see them um, resign, but I've They've gotten stronger support, although they, too, have seen some donors um, reacting to what was viewed as uh, also a, a lukewarm response to the Hamas attack. Um, and not just from donors, by the way, but in Harvard's case, former President Larry Summers was highly critical of uh, President Gay's, what he viewed as a slow 
um, expression of uh, condemnation there. Well, there are a lot of uh, issues to unpack here, um, um, obviously, and uh, um, one is the uh, response to the attacks, and uh, um, uh, another is the, uh, the their testimony, which we now learn, at least uh, reportedly, was um, was uh, coached by lawyers, and uh, you know it may have, may have been uh, uh, legally correct. It sounded sort of clinical uh, based on the clips that I saw, but obviously uh, they lost the public relations war. And um, sometimes uh, lawyers uh, you know, don't always give you the best advice. I think you're exactly right. As I said in a, a recent talk, they brought lawyers to a knife fight. Um, they handled those questions in a very antiseptic, legalese manner, um, but it was a political forum when they should have begun each of those statements by condemning any call for genocide of anybody. Um, it made that clear. Instead, they gave an opening to Stefanik and others to portray them as, in, at the very least, insensitive to the concerns of Jewish students. We're chatting with Matt Dickinson, a professor of political science at Middlebury, and uh, you, you raised an issue that we, we should get to, uh, uh, Matt, uh, quite directly, and that is uh, what about the free expression angle to this? Um, um, we've talked before, um, both uh, on this uh, show and elsewhere, about how the importance of allowing uh, free speech and views that we find uncomfortable, even hateful, uh, to be expressed. And uh, now um, uh, there seems to be some retreat from that. There is, uh, and it's a fascinating um, unfolding narrative on these college campuses. Uh, as you and I have discussed many times, um, and as the college presidents, at least in the technical sense, were quite correct, there's a difference between uh, language directed at an individual student targeting them, harassing them, doxing them, versus general statements of um, even hateful statements of viewpoint. And generally, those latter statements are protected by college speech codes, um, including, in theory, a general statement that said, I want to wipe Israel off the map um, if a college paper. Now, obviously, as private institutions, although their speech codes are modeled after the First Amendment, they, they could be more um, stringent. But what has really, I think, fascinated a lot of us who study this is for the last five years or so, these debates have generally pitted those on the left who are arguing that lots of speech, what they call hate speech, should be strictly regulated or curtailed versus conservatives who are saying, no, um, the full uh, uh, tolerance of viewpoints is required. Um, you have to make students comfortable saying uncomfortable things. But now the shoe is on the other foot. Um, most of the advocates for um, open discussion are uh, doing so in the context of the pro-Palestinian debates, and Jewish advocates are saying those uh, debates, those protests on campus are in fact targeting Jews, and so it's hate speech that should be banned. Um, and as you and I have said for a long time, the idea that one side is pro-speech and one side is um, you know, trying to limit that speech is really a dangerous perspective here um, because both sides in history have been um, targeted by the other side uh, um, in this debate. 
And over time, as you point out, uh, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, it was liberals who were shouted down, those who opposed the Vietnam War or trying to advance a civil rights agenda. And, and then more recently, it's been conservative voices that have been uh, silenced on, on our college campuses. And now, as you note, uh, it's kind of shifting back, and at least in the uh, context of the Middle East. So um, got to be consistent on these things, and uh, sometimes that takes uh, courage. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I think people who view this exchange with Stefanik as showing the college president's anti-Semitic leanings, I think are missing a, a more fundamental point. I, uh, as you pointed out, I, I certainly uh, know Claudine, so we should be clear about that, um, have the highest regard for her. But the controversy, I think, is, is exactly what you said. It's the inconsistency in applying free speech standards on campuses that leads some people to argue uh, it's speech for me but not for thee, that your decisions, including the decisions of college presidents, and which speech to allow, in which to restrict, depends on whether they agree with the views being expressed. And that's a very dangerous slippery slope for college presidents to get on. It certainly is, and for all of us and for leaders in other uh, um, uh, situations, whether it's corporate America or, or governmental units, uh, but especially on college campuses where um, uh, people need to be uh, exposed to different ideas. And I was interested to see uh, Van Jones, the former Obama aide, uh, with an interesting line uh, recently. He said that uh, colleges should be a place that are physically safe but intellectually unsafe. Uh, so that people can, uh, students in particular, can hear different ideas. Well, that's precisely right. And I think there's been a danger in recent years that uh, we are treating students as consumers, and particularly at elite institutions where students pay a lot of money, there's been a tendency to give them what they want. But that's not the job of higher education. We're not there to feed them comforting views, we're there to make them uncomfortable by exposing them to views that they may not have had to grapple with before. Um, so the job of a college education, I think, is um, it's to teach students how to think, not to confirm their pre-existing dispositions on what they think. And a lot of them have them. Uh, as you know, I uh, co-chaired a task force on campus free expression uh, a couple of years ago, and and uh, we realized that a lot of students come from fairly homogeneous backgrounds, their schools, their communities, and uh, their circle of friends. And, and college is a time when they uh, experience diversity of ideas as well as uh, other uh, demographic factors for the first time. And uh, it, it's not always an easy adjustment. You mentioned before the break, uh, Matt, that you know Claudine Gay personally. Um, and um, we'd be interested in uh, hearing about your relationship. And also, um, uh, she's got another little controversy brewing, right? Well, that's right. Uh, and I should be clear, um, Claudine uh, owes nothing to me in terms of her success in life. She's an accomplished scholar, um, and I merely taught her in one course. She was a graduate student while I was a professor um, at Harvard. But uh, the unfortunate thing is this has put a spotlight on her entire record and there's allegations now of plagiarism that she is dealing with um, she has um, rejected 
uh, any claims uh, and stood by her record, uh, as has apparently an independent uh, committee appointed by Harvard, although we don't know who the members of that committee are, who reviewed her academic record. And they did find uh, what you might call some sloppiness, and she has promised to retroactively correct that. But they um, did not substantiate um, outright claims of plagiarism. And we can certainly differ about this, but uh, her record is being scrutinized at the same time she's under pressure for the testimony. And so this is a very difficult time for her. And the word embattled is often frequently overused, but I think it certainly is an apt description of her position now. Well, um, the plagiarism controversy is not going away, is it? I mean, we see uh, um, some of the authors um, whom she allegedly plagiarized coming forward uh, with with different uh, interpretations of whether this was legitimate or not. Uh, the New York Post uh, published the uh, highlighted sentences and paragraphs so that readers can decide for themselves if it's fair uh, to consider it plagiarism or not. Um, uh, where, where does this go from here, do you think? Well, I, I think two questions need to be answered. Are there other instances? Is this a pervasive pattern of sloppiness, or is it a, a few isolated incidents? And second, what is the nature of the plagiarism? So again, um, a, a former colleague of mine whose work was plagiarized, um, at least in his words, uh, who now teaches at the University of Kentucky, uh, made two um, contrasting points. One is he said, technically, um, President Gay's use of my, it was it had to do with a statistical methodology uh, that she basically copied and pasted into um, an article she wrote, is a form of plagiarism. But he said it was so insubstantial as not to be worth um, prosecuting her for. And, and, and he stood by her 100%. Whereas another former colleague of mine, Dr. Swain, um, argues that the plagiarism was so egregious that she has forfeited her right to be president of Harvard. So I think the second question is, how does this play out in the court of public opinion? And I think a lot of this depends on whether you think this is uh, in, an important um, uh, but how you define plagiarism uh, substantively and technically, and I think a lot of the interpretations are, I think, going to be shaped by whether people want her to remain or not, frankly. Well, we all uh, agree, I think, that uh, plagiarism is uh, unacceptable. We, we spent a lot of time thinking about it at uh, Middlebury, and I'm sure other institutions do. The question is whether it occurred in this case, and as you say, when the, when the spotlight uh, gets brighter, then uh, there's a lot more scrutiny, and that may or may not be fair, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, back well, she's in a public position, so she's fair game, um, and unfortunately, uh, that doesn't mean she's going to be treated fairly. Yeah, I think I, I, think I know what you mean. <laughs> um, um, we're, we're chatting with Matt Dickinson from Middlebury about the uh, um, three um, college presidents, university presidents who appeared before the Congressional Committee. But the, the broader issue that you, uh, you and I have discussed a number of times is the uh, question of uh, allowing 
um, different ideas to be expressed on our campuses uh, for the betterment of the students and and also because it's uh, the right thing to do in a free society. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've seen the best uh, policies in the world that uh, seem to wilt, uh, or at least those who administer them do, when uh, the going gets tough. And uh, you've experienced some of this uh, at our campus, too. And uh, uh, how, how do we get to a place where there's a, a true culture of, of um, as Mr. Jones says, um, um, you know, uh, uh, intellectual unsafety so that students can, can really learn, which is the whole purpose of a college education? I think it stops at, starts at the top. Uh, I think administrations have to signal to students when they come in, their first day on campus, that this is the ethos that guides us in the classroom and outside the classroom, uh, which is, as Joan says, um, our job is to keep you physically secure but intellectually insecure. Uh, and this is why we do it. And that ethos has to be constantly reinforced, uh, not just by the administration and how it handles um, speech cases, but it needs to back faculty up. Um, and I think in faculty hiring, frankly, I think we need to pay much more attention not to somebody's ideological views, which I think is out of bounds in the hiring process, but to their commitment to this ethos of uh, viewpoint diversity. I think it's crucial, and I think we've, frankly, I think we've lost our way a little bit, um, and and the liberal arts uh, education, and um, it it's not going to be fixed overnight. It's going to be fixed by one decision after another when it comes to hiring and enforcing these speech codes. Uh, and as you said, it requires courage because. It, you can, particularly on social media, exert tremendous pressure. Um, a few voices can be magnified in ways that make it very hard for administrators to stand up to those those louder voices. But that's precisely what they have to do. And you've, you've raised uh, an important point. Uh, you and I in our classes at the college both like to be provocative from time to time to um, throw out uh, ideas that we may not necessarily share, but but to generate uh, discussion and, and get students thinking more widely about a particular issue. And and what we don't want is uh, some instructor to be called on the carpet for um, for for being provocative and generating that discussion, uh, but sometimes that happens. It has happened. Um, as you know, I begin my courses now by telling the students this is not an intellectually safe space. It's a physically safe space, but not intellectually. But uh, I have to be concerned, I think as all faculty, um, that that one student who finds the discussion, as you say, um, pushed perhaps by deliberately by me to get them to think about something that they think is unthinkable. Um, that student uh, reacts in a way that um, calls for disciplinary action against the faculty. And that exercises a chilling effect. It makes it much harder to teach the way that I think we, we need to be able to teach. And, and ultimately, it's to the detriment of all the students if faculty feel they have to pull their punches a little bit here. Well put, Matt. And uh, 
Uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. It flies when we're having fun, and I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show again to talk about a, a different topic, but an important one as we uh, look to the future of higher education. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you all for joining us on Vermont Viewpoint today. We'll see you sometime. Have a great holiday. <laughs>